It's about things that go beyond the normal rational order, which is Saturn. You know, we think of things that are far out. You know, in the 60s, there was a far out man, and Uranus is is out there. It's beyond the consensus reality, which is Saturn. So, so. Well, I mean, being an astrologer, you know, I've known about this conjunction in the 60s for decades. But um, when I was doing my research and I was looking at all the astrology of everything, it became very clear to me that there was this vertical dimension that was happening. In fact, if you read the book Revolution in the Head by Ian McDonald, which is um, one of the main texts that I've consulted that is widely read, um, McDonald actually discusses the Beatles trajectory in this fashion as well, of this rising up, peaking, and declining. So it just occurred to me that if I, um, you know, situate the planetary exchange within this motion, voila, what happened was a, you know, depiction of it. And it just so happened to fit so beautifully with the music and lyrics and the events in this fashion. In fact, it's so accurate that it became the centerpiece of the book and everything in the book is discussed as being at some place in this evolutionary trajectory. To the spiritual dimension of the Beatles. So, welcome back to the spiritual dimension of the Beatles. Eric, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about the Ark of Awakening today. The Ark of Awakening. Yeah, so uh, the Ark of Awakening is the central kind of structure um, that runs through the entire book, and everything is understood. Um, through this uh, trajectory. Um, and I guess I should introduce what the heck it is. Yeah, like what, what, what's being awoken and what, what does that even mean, the arc of awakening? Okay, so um, <clears throat> what this thing is, <clears throat> is uh, it's created by the degree of closeness uh, between the planets Uranus and Pluto. Uh, they reached a conjunction in the middle years of the 1960s. What, what does conjunction mean? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? When they're together in the sky, when they are observed as being in the same place from okay. Earth. So, so if so if I, because I've got one of those apps on my phone that I can like look at the stars and it tells me what it is. So if I was holding up my phone in the sky, I would see Uranus and it was Pluto, kind of like directly lined up with each other? When they're conjunct, and that happened in 1965 and 1966. Okay. And it's actually a pretty big deal because these planets move very, very slowly. So they only have a conjunction around once every 125 years. And, and that's basically like if you drew a line from Earth to Pluto to Uranus, it would be like a single line. They're all on the same. Yes. Okay. All right. And so it's rare. It only happens once every, on average, one, 125 years. But it's, it's inconsistent because Pluto is in irregular orbit. Mm. So it speeds up and it slows down. So it's a little bit of a headache. 
But on average, like I said, 125 years stay conjunct. So it happened in the mid 60s. So in 1961, to the left of this uh, graphic, that's when they entered a 10 degree orb. And you can see that on the left with a little kind of vertical scale. And then as the 60s unfolded, they became tighter and the motion then would rise towards the exact conjunction, which would be at the peak in the middle years of the 60s. And then in the latter half of the decade, they were separating and that would create the downward motion of release, which happened around 1970 uh, using a 10 degree orb. And so this planetary interchange is the defining event of the 1960s. And why is that? Uh, what, 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 do they, what do they mean? Yeah, I was just about to say. Um, <clears throat> so the planet Uranus is called the Great Awakener. And Uranus is about metaphysics. It's about um, breakthroughs into new paradigms. It's about um, just things that go beyond the normal rational order, which is Saturn. You know, we think of things that are far out. You know, in the 60s, there was a far out man and Uranus is, is out there. It's beyond the consensus reality, which is Saturn. So it, it points to innovations, new trends, um, things that are breakthrough, things that are cutting edge, uh, things that are much more uh, metaphysical. And so Uranus is exciting. It's about uh, the future, more or less, and um, an awakening into new potentials. The planet Pluto uh, that it's interacting with, uh, Pluto has to do with things that are more psychological, more um, things that are potent, uh, intense, things that are about, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like Pluto is um, things that are compelling and deep and alluring and things that are in the shadow. Think of the uh, Pluto is, uh, goes with the archetype of the underworld. Hades uh, is Pluto. So when you have Uranus and Pluto in connection, we're awakening from things that are previously um, shrouded in mystery, in darkness. And so things get exposed. Things get, um, you know, examined from this more awakened perspective. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? And so more than other combinations, Uranus and Pluto does have a sense of rising up from the darkness towards a broader connection with uh, what's beyond. And so the arc is this motion of rising and the whole Beatles trajectory was about, you know, rising up into the collective, into greater um, receptivity to other dimensions, to other perspectives to other um, ways that uh, consciousness can be oriented. So more or less, you can look at the bottom of this 
as life on the ground of the everyday, of the mundane. And the more that Uranus and Pluto are interacting is the more that we are kind of waking up from the mundane into phenomena that is more, quote, out there, more mm -hmm. transpersonal. In fact, Uranus and Pluto would be categorized as transpersonal energies, which means beyond the personality into things that are much more multidimensional or complicated or spiritual or, you know, transpersonal uh, beyond the ego. So we're looking how, how at- did, how, did you, how did you discover the connection between this arc of awakening and the Beatles trajectory? I mean, did you, when you went in and you started writing the book, did you have an idea to look for, for uh, Pluto and, and Uranus? <laughs> I can't say, I always want to say Uranus, but I know you're not supposed to say Uranus. So I always trip up over that word. Yeah. You can say Uranus. That's the way. Yeah, I Uranus. Okay. Yeah. So, so did you know, were you looking for that when you went in? How did, how did you discover this? Because like I, be, being a Beatles fan, but not really knowing anything about astrology, it makes sense to me to look at their, their career as having this Zenith in the middle, like around Sergeant Pepper um, and then kind of like tapering down a yeah. little bit, but, but that matches what these two planets were doing in their conjunction. So how, how did, how did you come across that? Well, I mean, being an astrologer, you know, I've known about this conjunction in the sixties for decades, mm. but um, when I was doing my research and I was um, looking at all the astrology of everything, it became very clear to me that um, there was this vertical dimension that was happening in fact, if you read the book Revolution in the Head by Ian MacDonald, which is um, one of the main texts that I've consulted that is widely read, um, MacDonald actually discusses the Beatles trajectory in this fashion as well, um, <clears throat> of this rising up, peaking, and declining. So it just occurred to me that if I... Um, you know, situate the planetary exchange within this motion, voila, what happened was a, you know, depiction of it. And it just so happened to fit so beautifully with the music and lyrics and the events in this fashion. In fact, it's so accurate that it became the centerpiece of the book and everything in the book is discussed as being at some place in this evolutionary trajectory. Yeah. <clears throat> So when you're talking about Arc of Awakening and you're talking about the Beatles, like what, what were the changes? What, what, what were they awakening from? What were they awakening to? Yeah, well, again, if you think about other dimensions. Yeah, I, and, you, and you keep using the word dimensions, and I'm curious what you mean by that. Like, what do you mean by dimensions? Like our, our familiar dimension in the Saturnian world is what we might call everyday life. Saturnian world? Yes, Saturn is the, uh, is the energy of consensus reality of the mundane, materialistic, orderly realm of separation consciousness. Just basically everyday life is, is Saturn. And the outer planets are beyond that, and they point to phenomena that do not necessarily function within the orderly confines of the everyday world. Things that are... Um, more quote out there, like I'm saying. So when you go on a meditation journey 
or you go into, you know, like the Beatles did, you know, enhanced journeys of consciousness, you know, uh, you know, their drug use more or less. Um, or with so, you, you, so you're talking about LSD um, meditation. Yeah, but the main thing that is most relevant is dreams in the Beatles story, and non ordinary experiences, and being able to be intuiting from um, other uh, levels of consciousness. Um, you know, I open up the book with a little anecdote from Paul where he was talking about uh, there being seven levels to this existence is a quote of his when he was, uh, the Beatles were connecting with Bob Dylan. Right. It was great honor to meet him. We had a crazy party the night we met. Um, I thought I got the meaning to life that night. And I went around trying to find our roadie. Mal, 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 get a pencil and a paper. I've got it, I've got it. And I'd written, there are seven levels. And so if you think of other levels, that's what we're looking at here, beyond the ordinary. So basically the arc of awakening is going up into the other levels of consciousness. Mm. And so the big theme of the book is connecting in with inspiration, connecting in with the muse, soul wisdom, the collective consciousness, things that are not necessarily part of our experience of ordinary consciousness. So the Uranus-Pluto interchange that only happens, you know, infrequently is when we have access to other levels or dimensions of consciousness beyond the ordinary. And the whole point is to rise up, connect with it, then bring it back down into reality to integrate, to bring heaven to earth is what we're talking about here. And that is the overarching theme of the book is rising up, boom, getting inspired, bringing it back down into everyday life. And that's how evolution works. We are constantly bringing things beyond the ordinary and familiar Saturn. So the outer planets do that. And then that's how evolution works. So for instance, um, in general, um, Saturn would correlate with classical physics, the orderly, you know, uh, way that everything functions like the um you know commonly you have the billiard ball example of classical mm -hmm. physics just the way things hit into each other and work and it's orderly but quantum physics with uh fields of potentials and probability fields yeah. and things that are beyond order and logic is the outer planets and so that level exists simultaneously with the classical level. So we have yeah. different dimensions going on simultaneously. So when you say dimension, you're talking about like a, a, a quantum level uh, dimension versus a Newtonian level or theory of relativity, kind of the, the, the big stuff and the little stuff. More or less. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I'll tell you, because when, when I was a kid and I was growing up, I, I, my favorite TV show for a while was The Greatest American Hero. And I don't, do you remember that show? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there was this episode where he puts on a suit and he goes through this wall. There's like a woman that's a ghost, but she's in this other dimension. He has to go through this dimension and there's like a monster that is, is like stopping him and his suit doesn't have any power in there. So 
now whenever I hear the word dimension, ever since I watched that episode, I always think about that monster that's protecting, you know, like this dimension versus wherever dead people are or something like that. Is that, is that kind of what you're thinking? Well, of? dead people is the theme here. And Pluto okay. goes with death. Pluto All goes right. with um, such phenomena. So the awakening to connect with the dead is exactly what Uranus Pluto is about. And that's mm. a big theme of the book as well. Mm. And so the, the trajectory of the Beatles story in my understanding and research is that they were um, awakening to such phenomena and bringing down messages, inspiration, um, other types of um, qualities of consciousness that can inform the music and the lyrics is what I believe was happening. And now it's, it's instinctual. You know, when this happens, we don't realize exactly what's necessarily going on. Yeah. Uh, just like when you're in a dream, you, right. it's nebulous. We don't realize what we're actually connecting with. It's a mystery. Well, and we, and we talked before about Paul dreaming a lot of his songs. Like yesterday is the one that I, I'm most familiar with. So did with. John. Yeah, John also mentioned that. Yeah. So that that's that's what what you're saying then is that um, intelligence is being communicated to them from another dimension and their conduits yes. channeling that into the, this and it's following like the, the message that they're giving is following this arc of awakening that you, you see with the conjunction of the planets, Pluto and yeah, the conjunction of planets just gives you the strength of when this is most available. Mm -hmm. And so the tighter it is, the more kind of hot, the more on, the more available um, this process is. We don't generally have access to it that often. Mm. Um, now, in someone's personal astrology, they can have a Uranus or Neptune or Pluto transit, and they might have their own access individually. What does transit uh, mean? Uh, transit is just the way that the planets are in interacting with anyone's natal chart. Mm. So anyone at any point could have a Uranus transit. Mm. But we're looking at the collective level for all of us, the way that they are in the sky. And it's a rare interchange. Um, in fact, we had the Uranus-Pluto conjunction in the 60s. And then the square, the next major frictional kind of interchange was roughly speaking around 2008 to about 2017 or so. So we had another installment of this um, not too long ago, but it was completely different than what we had in the 60s for various kind of, you know, complicated reasons. But the one in the 60s was much more about um, awakening into other dimensions. Furthermore, the planet Neptune is also a major player. And Neptune was in the sign of Scorpio during the 60s and spiritualism. Uh, making contact with phenomena um, of that nature, of, um, of the departed, of, um, you know, there's a major emphasis on, um, on that type of thing. And so that's a big theme of the book, is connecting with uh, dead people, <laughs> more or less, uh, which is m much more relevant with the astrology in the 60s. Um, and so that is the focus of the book. I see dead people. <laughs>
So um, the ARC uh, began its liftoff in the fall of 1961, uh, right when they met Brian Epstein is when this thing started to elevate. And the upward swing, the upward trajectory is marked by enthusiasm. Things are building, excitement, Beatlemania. And so they met Epstein right when it was rising in 1961 at the very end of the year. And then things were accelerating rapidly. They began, uh, well, they met George Martin in 1962. And the first recording session was in June of 62. And uh, things were developing. <clears throat> and they uh, recorded the first singles in the fall of 62. The first album came out in 63. And things were really getting exciting. I call it in the book, The Meteoric Rise. So I use vertical um, vocabulary throughout the book, both rising and falling. And, and the way that people discuss Beatlemania is with that elevating, rising kind of vocabulary, which matches uh, the spirit of this. And so it's very exciting. And so initial enthusiasm, but immature and relatively undeveloped at the beginning. And the songs were still quite uh, childlike. I want to hold your hand, little child, misery. You know, these songs are very, very um, immature. And then as the arc rose, they gradually became more and more metaphysically informed. And the whole thing is, you know, within eight or nine years, it's almost like a compacted kind of view of spiritual maturation peaking and coming back down that you might see within a much longer time frame was like kind of like microwave as instant. Is going to get you. you know, awakening, peak, and uh, integration, you know, that was contained basically in just eight or nine years. <clears throat> Excuse me. So at any rate, um, <laughs> things developed and gathered a lot of momentum in the upward swing. <clears throat> and the music and the lyrics and even things culturally uh, were rapidly um, modernizing during the 60s with this interchange. And so if you look at the trajectory of the Beatles catalog, you know, it wasn't, it didn't take that long. Um, in 1964, as the arc was rising a bit more, um, the first songs that uh, really were pointing to uh, something kind of unique or metaphysical happening uh, occurred. And I talk about the first inklings of things uh, with the song, uh, Things We Said Today, which is on Hard Day's Night. And that song is very important in this, uh, in this unfolding. And... Um, Things We Said Today talks about remembering a prior agreement to meet in dream time. Someday when I'm dreaming, 
Uh, someday when we're dreaming, we'll remember the things we said today. Deep in love, not a lot to say. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And so that song has a lot of significance uh, in the rising trajectory. Mm. Um, and then in, and as the motion continued to accelerate, then in 65 was when things really started to um, pop. You had um, the whole experience of Paul intuiting yesterday in his dreams. Mm-hmm. You had John intuiting nowhere man in his dreams. He said the whole thing arrived, boom, when I laid down. Um, and then the songs became more and more informed by these other dimensions or perspectives from above um, as it, it was accelerating. And then it peaks uh, basically for Revolver in 1966, the vision from the mountaintop. Tomorrow Never Knows. Eleanor Rigby, which is a climax of the death issue. Yeah. And it depicts a funeral. And there's all types of amazing things happening in Eleanor Rigby that are very, very woo-woo. And Paul talks about it in interviews. What do you mean the things in Eleanor Rigby that are really woo-woo? Yeah. I want to hear this. Okay, so, um, yeah, Eleanor Rigby is is one of the coolest things. Uh, It's it's a very special song. And uh, If if you want to save it for later to do a whole episode on Eleanor Rigby, you can. But give me some little, like, morsels, some nuggets right here. Okay, so... Um, Paul came up with the name Eleanor Rigby on his own. And uh, he wasn't aware until this century, until after the year 2000, he was told that, uh, did you know that there's actually a graveyard um, in Liverpool with a grave for a actual woman named Eleanor Rigby? He didn't know that. This is a kind of strange story about that because I, I wanted, I like the name Eleanor. We've been working with an actress called Eleanor Braun in uh, the Beatles film Help. So I like the name Eleanor, but I was looking for this Eleanor Papa to make the, the rhythm. So I was looking for this nice surname and uh, I happened to be in Bristol and the, I saw a shop that said Rigby. So I thought, oh great. Eleanor Rigby. So now I had the the name of my main character. But then years later, somebody else is researching this, and they said, you know, in that village where you used to, where John used to live, um, there's a graveyard uh, in the church, and there is a gravestone there to an Eleanor Rigby. So I said, did I subconsciously know that name? Why would I go around searching for it? I don't know. I think it's maybe a coincidence, but there is a gravestone in Liverpool in, in uh, a place called Walton where me and John met to, to say Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, I thought, he, I thought he got the name from Eleanor Braun from their, exactly. their co-star and help. Yeah, he got Ellen, uh, Eleanor Braun and he combined it with a business called Rigby and Evans. Mm. And he just said, okay, Eleanor Rigby. He just made up the name from those two sources. Yeah, but I, I've heard John Lennon say it was about um, two other kinds of people. I'd like to direct this question to Messrs. Lennon and uh, McCartney. 
in uh, a recent article, Time Magazine put down pop music, and they referred to uh, Day Tripper as being about a prostitute, oh, yeah. and Norwegian Wood about as being about a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Now, I just wanted to know what what your intent was when you wrote it. Well, you're just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians, that's all. <laughs> Can I ask about the song, uh, Eleanor Rigby, what was the motivation or inspiration for that? Two quiz. <laughs> and he just said, okay, Eleanor Rigby, he just made up the name from those two sources. But he didn't know that there was an actual real-life woman named Eleanor Rigby. Who was actually who... killed at a church by Father Mackenzie? <laughs> well, that's well, not I what think... Oh yeah, no, wiping his hands, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walked from the grave, no one was saved. Okay, well, I have a different interpretation. <laughs> That's interesting. Paul, Paul I, I did hear in an interview once, Paul acknowledged that that was kind of like a little joke to have Father McKenzie kill Eleanor Rigby, but he didn't really do it heavy-handedly. No, but I, I think, have a much, so. much different interpretation of Father All McKenzie right. in the book. But the point being... <laughs> <laughs> This is comedic, isn't it? It's what? This is funny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, comedic. I thought you said communic. Yeah. Yeah. But Eleanor Rigby has enormous similarities to Mary McCartney. Mm. So much so that it is, uh, it gets into very um, woo-woo stuff. My, my interpretation here is that Paul was connecting with mm. his dead mother, Mary, intuiting. Yeah. And Mary was, in fact, revealing herself mm. uh, through the Eleanor Rigby character. Because Give me chills, man. I'm getting chills from this. Ele Eleanor Rigby. Because, I, because the father, Father McKenzie, was originally Father McCartney, but he changed that. Yes. So it's his mom and his dad that he's writing about in the song. Yeah, that's a little bit different. But let's stay mm. in Eleanor for a minute. <laughs> okay. Is that Eleanor Rigby, the actual real-life person, she died in her mid-40s from health complications. She worked in hospitals uh, as a nurse-like kind of assistant, you know, in the hospital. Mary McCartney also died in her mid-40s, and Mary McCartney was a nurse that worked in hospitals in Liverpool as well. So Eleanor and Mary have very... Uh, similar biographical um, dynamics in, 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 their, in their lives. And so Paul was totally unaware of the real life Eleanor Rigby, but she resembles not only Mary McCartney astrologically, I should say biographically, but there's also uncanny astrological similarities oh. between Eleanor Rigby and Mary McCartney. So you, you've looked at the natal chart for the actual uh, Eleanor Rigby? Of course. Mm, and that's in the book? Yes. Ah. And it's, it's mind-blowing Wow. what was going on. And so Paul was basically coming to terms with the death, the, the death of his mother, writing about a funeral. <clears throat> yeah. and, and much of Paul's uh, process, and John's too, was coming to terms with the death of their mothers yeah. um, who died when they were teenagers and they didn't grieve it. They didn't address it. They didn't even talk about it. In fact, there's quotes from, from Paul saying, John and I had a bond that we both knew what happened to each other, but we never talked about it. Yeah. 
Um, and so the dominant theme of the book is a lot of the Beatles songwriting, you know, process was actually coming to terms with the death of their deceased mothers. Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, Eric, um, but I did notice that on the cover of your book, there's some interesting constellations in the stars there. There's maybe some faces made out of stars there. Yes, exactly. And so this brings in the idea of the muse, yeah. which has been discussed a lot in Beatles literature and uh, in other arenas. And so the muse is not a new idea with the Beatles. In fact, if you go to Julia Lennon's Wikipedia page in the opening couple sentences. Turn your microphone around, please. Have the, have mic, the mic on, on the, the piano, piano quite low. low this, just this, keep it in like maracas, you know. You know those old You've been talking in the back of it this whole time. Oh, okay. Oh my God. Yeah, so much better. Okay, well, Jeez. Okay. That's better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's the learning curve. Yeah, so I was saying, if you go to Julia Lennon's Wikipedia page, right there in the opening, you know, intro paragraph, uh, even there, she's discussed as being the muse for mm. her son, John. And throughout the literature, you find this everywhere uh, about uh, the idea of the muse. Now, the issue is that how do we understand the muse in a more conventional way, meaning that the emotional impact, the longing for uh, just the memories, um, just the, uh, the sense of um, being inspired by their example, being an alive person is inspiration. Is it, in a more conventional pedestrian kind of Saturnian way, or do we understand the muse in a more transpersonal way? Mm. <clears throat> Meaning that, you know, dead people don't really die. <laughs> I see dead people. Mm. They, their consciousness remains and we might be able to connect in. That's what spiritualism is about. That's what was going on in the 60s with Neptune and Scorpio. It's the idea of spiritualism is that we're going to make contact with those who have departed. And in fact, you know, Paul might even go on to write that mother Mary comes to me speaking mm. words of wisdom. I wake up to the sound of music mm. is that the inspiration <clears throat> is coming through other dimensions, both with message and with music is that these guys were conduits yeah. and they have a very sacred relationship with their dead mothers uh, to reconnect. And so the idea of the reunion is another major theme of the entire book is the, um, in fact, things we said today <clears throat> discusses the soul contract. It, it says right in the opening lines, <clears throat> um, I hate to leave you, uh, but I have to go. But we'll return in dream time is basically what that song says, which is exactly what happened. And so that is one of the most prescient uh, major songs. That's, and, that's I'll Be Back. And then I'll Be Back is the yeah. other one from John. Very good. I hate to leave you. 
Yeah, so they, they, they mirror each other. Um, things we said today, and I'll be back, are John and Paul's parallel. And this is what happens <clears throat> throughout the whole thing, is John and Paul uncannily parallel each other every step of the way. It's crazy. Uh, because they have a sole partnership to do this. And so they're just following their instinct, their internal guidance. But every step of the way, they, they mirror each other. Um, so I'll be back and things we said today are, I only mentioned things we said today because Paul's is much more descriptive. It's much more fleshed out. John's is a little bit more. What's the lyric in things we said today? You say you will love me if I have to go. You'll be thinking of me. Somehow I will know. Someday when we're dreaming, deep in love, not a lot to say. And we will remember things we said today. Okay. So I, I'm not going to be singing on this podcast. I hope not. We were just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians. That's it. Then at the... In 1965, you have the yesterday process. And then the other song that was written at the same time of yesterday, um, I've Just Seen a Face, which talks about um, being called. Um, Calling, she keeps on calling. And it also mentions dreaming uh, Mm -hmm. throughout. Uh, I'll dream of her tonight. Mm -hmm. And so dreaming and calls is the theme. And that is, you know, highly, uh, you know, represented in I've Just Seen a Face, um, which is part of Paul's intuitive breakthrough in the spring of 65. And then John, a little bit later in the autumn of 65, has his big intuitive breakthrough, which is Nowhere Man. Um, In fact, Nowhere Man is one of the most important songs in the entire catalog from a spiritual perspective. It lays out what I call the dream perspective. You know what? Let's not get in even into that today. It's, it's a whole tangent. But Nowhere Man is the parallel to uh, yesterday, more or less. Um, and then in 66, at the peak of the arc, is when the breakthrough has already been established and it's more collaboration and so the partnership with the muse um, has the most um, significance in what i call the transcendence period from revolver sergeant pepper magical mystery tour and yellow submarine even into the white album is where the mature collaborations happen but in the rising motion of the arc that's when they break through and they make contact so consciousness is elevating so you've talked about them going from immaturity to maturity yeah and that that that's this arc of awakening these these early immature songs then at the the height there's a lot of maturity there and then it kind of like as the as they're breaking up and they're going into their individual styles it kind of tapers off yeah it's not like they become less mature it's the application to matters on the ground Mm. it's like they got the inspiration from the mountaintop and then the dissension was to bring it down into reality, into individuation, into the everyday, <clears throat> which is what you have at the end of the uh, catalog with the White Album, Abbey Road and Let It Be, is the application into real life scenarios. Mm. 
like Hey Jude, which is about, you know, John and Cynthia getting divorced or, you know, on Abbey Road, you have lots of songs like uh, You Never Give Me Your Money or other mundane matters. And it's the application back down to the to real life. Hmm. But the real magical stuff is in the transcendence period. Revolver, Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, and Yellow Submarine to a lesser degree, which was also created during the transcendence period, those songs. But the real big stuff is, is more uh, Revolver and Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. Those three albums have the mature collaborations with the muse before the window closes in the later 60s and we got to be back on the ground again. All right. Are you ready for these songs, Eric? I'm ready for you. Okay. I, I picked out five songs at random, and I want you to tell me a little bit about what these songs mean based on where they fall on the Ark of Awakening, okay? Okay. Hit and, me. And I tried, I tried to not do them in order. Um, so let, let's just go. I'll, I'll just start here. Okay. You and none of this Yellow- is prepared. I'm being totally hit cold here. Yeah. So you mentioned Yellow Submarine. So tell me about the significance of that song and where it fits in the Ark of Awakening. So we sail to the sun Well, that's at the peak of the Ark. I mean, Yellow Submarine, <clears throat> it turns out, contrary to what most people might think, is one of the absolutely most significant songs in the entire catalog it turns out, is Yellow Submarine. Um, Yellow Submarine and Tomorrow Never Knows parallel each other at the peak of the arc. They're completely different songs. They sound totally different. They they almost sound like they're two different bands. But they're thematically the same thing. In fact, this will be its own episode discussing those two songs at the peak of the arc because they synthesize what I call the solar thread and the dream thread. And so John is writing on Tomorrow Never Knows of relaxing in a shining void and floating downstream. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. You know, it is not dying. You know, surrender to the void. It is shining. And Yellow Submarine is being in the water downstream you know in a vessel that is sailing Sailing up to the the sun sun. sailing to the sun and the sun is about awakening Mm. and so yellow submarine let me say that again yellow submarine is almost a cartoon-like animation of tomorrow never knows Mm. that no one i never saw this myself until i researched this and studied this and this was mind-blowing to me And so John and George are the two band members that are primarily responsible for Tomorrow Never Knows. And John and George are the most experimental, the most kind of out there. And Tomorrow Never Knows is one of the most experimental out there songs. And Paul and Ringo are the two members who are most responsible for Yellow Submarine, which is the opposite. It's the most childlike playful, animated, easy to comprehend, simple caricature of the same idea. And so the band members partner with each other in different ways throughout the catalog. And so Paul and Ringo, Yellow Submarine, and John and George for Tomorrow Never Knows uh, provide parallels of the synthesis of the two dominant major threads 
in the book, the nice. solar thread and the dream thread. All right. I might have to, I might have to put like a time limit on your, your answers. <laughs> like See, that's, 30 the seconds you go. <laughs> that, that's the thing that's so challenging because all of this in the book is thoroughly discussed yeah. before we get there. Sure. 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 Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of playing around with you. like with the time Yeah. Time. All right. Next song. Let's go with, uh, tell me what you see. <laughs> we will never be apart if I'm part of you. Open up your eyes now. Tell me what you see. It is no surprise now. What you see is me. Did you come up with that on your own? I wrote them down. Well, I didn't mention this because I didn't want to get too tangential, but the whole process of yesterday and I've just seen a face is actually three songs in that process. And tell me what you see is the other song that is about the intuitive breakthrough. If you read the lyrics of tell me what you see and you look at it from a different perspective and imagine that Paul is receiving a message open up your eyes now tell me what you see it is no surprise now what you see is me mm -hmm. how can i get through listen to me one more time now how can i get through and so i discuss tell me what you see again i love this is what i love most about the beatles is that everyone enjoys the famous songs but there are some more esoteric songs that have unbelievable spiritual significance. And Tell Me What You See is at the very top of the list. Now, the other one that I'll mention as a little teaser is um, Don't Pass Me By on the White Album. Hmm. Has enormous spiritual significance. Totally esoteric song. Well, I didn't include that one on my five list of right. five, Eric, so you can't talk about it yet. And there's some others that <laughs> yeah. are also very... Uh, well, well, let me go to another obscure one then. Yeah. Piggies. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives. Clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon. <laughs> okay. Uh, piggies on the White Album is uh, part of the individuation process. Uh, so George is coming into his own One more time. Uh, voice on Piggies. And, you know, George is working out some of his issues with Piggies. The same thing he did with Taxman. Taxman and Piggies actually have a lot of similarities. And in fact, Piggies was written in 66. Oh, was it? Uh, but it didn't come out until 68 with, mm. uh, with the White Album. And so George has wounds around the so-called authorities, uh, as I like to call them, the, the politicians, the religious officials, the people who are telling him what to think. So he was learning to think for himself, which is the name of a song on Rubber Soul. And so George, more than the others, well, John too, to some degree as well. Um, but George probably most had the most issues with the powers that be. And so he was working out his own um, wounds uh, around, uh, you know, the 
mismanagement from those in power. And so Piggies is about the hypocrisy of, you know, here's the pigs that are clutching forks and knives to eat their bacon, you know, and, uh, and so that's part of the individuation period, which the white album is the preeminent, you know, depiction of the individuation process. So even though, even though it was written at the kind of the zenith of the arc of awakening, it didn't, it wasn't. Well, that's another issue when things come out and become manifest and they then they assume their proper place in the chronology. Mm. So it doesn't matter as much when they were written. It matters when they were released. Mm, recorded, released. Because it's yeah. just in a process, just mm. like, you know, you and I might be in a process, but when we put out the book, that's when it comes to life. Just like writing the Beatles book, The Spiritual Dimension, it's going to come out when it comes out. Not necessarily, you know, it's not as relevant for my own creative process a few years earlier. <clears throat> So, uh, so the individuation process is about developing and exercising one's own unique creative voice. And so the subject matter in the beginning of the catalog um, was what I call the early formula. In fact, I created a list of only about eight different words. And one of those eight words are in every Beatles song in the first five albums. There isn't a lot of variation with the subject matter in the early catalog. It's basically, you know, um, she loves you. Yeah. You know, romanticism, hold me tight, please me. You know, it's, it's very adolescent. And then they mature, they become them themselves. And the white album is any topic is fair game. Mm -hmm. And the, amount of topics on the white album is staggering all right well well the the next song is also a white album song blackbird take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life you were only waiting for this moment to rise well, yeah, I mean, that's Paul. Blackbird is extremely significant. It has so many layers to it. It goes into the bird theme. It goes into the dark theme. It goes into the Shadowlands. It's, uh, uh, Blackbird is um, about the transformation of Paul's own broken will, his own broken wings, learning to regenerate from unresolved grief, learning to fly again. It's about regeneration. And, and interestingly, after the Beatles broke up, Paul named his own band Wings. Yeah. And it has the same symbology of the Phoenix rising from the underworld. And mm-hmm. so Blackbird is the process of going into the shadow and, um, and transforming grief into empowerment is what that song is about and rising up from the shadow. And so uh, Blackbird has many other levels to it. It's, it's one of the utmost uh, spiritually significant songs uh, in the whole catalog. And it's a good one too. Yeah, it is. All right, last one on my list. I'm only sleeping. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy. I don't I'm 
only sleeping on Revolver, um, John's song, At the Peak. And that song, in my uh, interpretation and analysis, has a lot to do with John um, depicting his process of being a visionary, of being a conduit. Um, people think he's lazy. People think he just is checked out. But actually, if you look at the lyrics of the song, it's actually describing meditation. It's describing observation. I'm looking out the window, watching the world go by, staring at the ceiling. It's about observing his own process within his removal, within uh, his own alone time. And that was John's gift. He came in as a visionary, as an intuitive, and he was learning how to be a performer. And Paul was the opposite. He was a performer learning how to be a visionary. To me, I'm Only Sleeping reveals John's visionary, um, you know, predilections. I love it. All right. So here's what, here's how I want to wrap it up today, Eric. Um, I found a video that I think this was George Harrison. It was his last public performance. It was in 1997. He was helping Ravi Shankar promote an album and he stopped by the VH1 studios, totally unannounced. And so they brought him in, they sat him down. They said, do you mind if we roll the cameras and do an interview? And so they did an interview with him for about 45 minutes or so. And then he played some songs, but I've taken about three minutes worth of that interview and, and put it together here. I'm going to play it for you. And I just, I just want to hear your reaction and your response to this. So this is years and years after this arc of awakening in the sixties. This is a few years before George's death. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to share this with you here. It may sound like a lofty thing to say on VH1, but basically, you know, what are we doing on this planet? I'm, I think through the Beatle experience, that we'd had, we'd grown so many years within a short period of time. You know, I get confused when I look around at the world and I see everybody's running around. And, you know, as Bob Dylan said, he not busy being born is busy dying. And yet nobody's trying to figure out what's the cause of death and what happens when you die. I mean, that to me is the only thing really that's of any importance. The rest is all secondary. I believed in the thing that I read years ago, which I think was in the Bible. It said, knock and the door will be opened. And it's true. If you want to know anything in this life, you just have to knock on the door, whether that be some physically on somebody else's door and ask them a question, or which I was lucky to find is the meditation. Is, you know, it's all within. Because if you think about it, there isn't anything I mean, in creation, the whole of creation that <clears throat> is perfect. You know, there is nothing that goes wrong with nature. Only what man does, then it goes wrong. But we are made of that thing. The very essence of our being, of every atom in our body, is made from this perfect knowledge, this perfect consciousness. But superimposed on that is through, if I can use the word, the tidal wave of bull that goes through the world. It's cable, you can say that. Yeah, so there's this, we're being barraged by, um, you know, by bull. But not only that, the way the world is structured or the way creation is structured, we have duality which says yes, no, good, bad, loss, gain, birth, death. 
and it's a, this circle that you get trapped in. It's like the Memphis Blues again. And that's the hardest thing to, <clears throat> to understand. What is causing um, both of these things? What's causing day and night, good and bad? It's all the, the cause, and this is the effect. So, I mean, we're getting really transcendental here. But well, to no, say I, that it, our, our physical being is really um, on a very, very subtle level, it's just like the sap in a tree mm -hmm. is is the sap and it runs throughout all the parts of the tree now it's like that our bodies are manifesting into physical bodies but the cause the sap is pure consciousness pure awareness and that is perfect and perfect knowledge but we have to tap into that to understand it and that's really why to, for me this record is important because it's another little key to open up the within for each individual to be able to sit and turn off um, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. All right. So what did you, what did you think of that, Eric? What, what did you pick out? What does that mean to you? I mean, he's commenting on the interplay of um, oneness and duality and <clears throat> that mysterious kind of um, relationship that both of those things are happening simultaneously. Um, <clears throat> things are one and things are also separate at the same time. There's... Um, multiple dimensions happening simultaneously. Um, and part of awakening, in my understanding, is the realization, the experience of greater oneness within the duality, bringing heaven to earth. And that's a theme of the Beatles and then the book is this bridging of worlds. How do we bridge the everyday, more mundane, more dualistic Saturnian realm with this other transpersonal uh, oneness, um, you know, that the outer planets point to. And that synthesis, how do we do that? Um, how do we bridge worlds? That's the overarching theme of the book. That's, to me, the theme of the Beatles that George was giving voice to. That's the theme of spirituality in many ways, is the negotiation of these different levels and the respect for both and how do we synthesize. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's very much, you know, what I wrote the book about. We were talking about the spiritual dimension of the Beatles. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Dimension of the Beatles podcast with Eric Myers and me, Glenn Ostland. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star rating and write a nice review for us on iTunes. You can also like our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Look for Eric's book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Beatles, coming sometime in early 2021. And while you're waiting, why not go check out my book, Bathing with God, which is available on Amazon.com. Or you could go listen to my other really great podcast, also called Bathing with God. And hey, if you've got a question that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, find us at our Facebook page or simply email us at spiritualbeetles at gmail.com. That's spiritualbeetles at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, because in the end, the love you take is equal... You know the rest. Oh.